And welcome to Deus Life, an aspirational podcast. I am Patrick, and here with me, as always, is Hayden. And today we have a very special guest, Megan Dom. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Of course, thank you for coming on. This is this is really exciting. You're actually the first guest that neither Hayden nor I have met previously in life. Oh. So this is uh, a, a a true moment in Deus Life history. And Patrick, you've been a fa- you, you you've been a fan of Megan's for for a while. Yeah, you you were uh, one of the first people I reached out to um, when we started this, like who I wanted on the show because I, I've been reading your writing for uh, a decade plus now, and, and that's a significant infancy? portion of my yeah. life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, in u- in utero, actually. He was yeah, reading. yeah. I, I, I came out to I, all ages. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I came out of the womb. I was going, do you have the Megan Dom? Do you have her latest op-ed? <laughs> yeah. Oh and uh, with that, uh, why don't you give our listeners sort of an intro to your career, um, how you became a writer, um, be as uh, brief or extensive as you want to be. Oh, gosh. Well, <laughs> um, I'll try to be brief. So I am a, I'm an essayist. I'm a journalist. Um I've written a novel. I've published six books. I was a columnist for the Los Angeles Times from 2005 to 2016, basically. And um, I've been a working writer my whole career. I, I'm really bad at everything else. So I'm lucky that this has worked <laughs> out. My, uh, my fallback career was playing the oboe. I was a, an accomplished wow. oboist as a as a teenager and as a young adult. So, um, wow. the only thing I really suck at everything else. So if, <laughs> if, if writing hadn't worked out, I would have had to, to make it as a professional oboist. So thank you. Well, goodness. I'm glad you didn't choose oboe because I think uh, with coronavirus raging, it'd be a tough time to be a professional oboist right now. Um, well, you can't, yeah, it'd be a hard time to be an oboe teacher. I actually have a, a good friend who's, uh, very one of the best oboists in the world and uh, nice his teaching career has certainly been affected and his or yes orchestra uh, orchestras or orchestra careers also affected you're right i can see the wheels in hayden's mind spinning he's wondering what an oboe is i know uh, exactly what an oboe it's is not the my, my, it's not the thing that looks like a bomb it, I oh know man, I threw you under the bus there. Man, throw me under the bus. My mom worked at the Los Angeles Philharmonic for 35 oh. years, so I know exactly what an oboe is. Thank you very much. All right. um, it's not the big so, one. It's not the yeah. big one. Yeah. yeah. Um, Megan, I'm curious when you were growing up, um, as you were finding yourself interested in writing, is it something that sort of naturally came out in school or were you finding yourself writing and journaling a lot outside of class? And how did you sort of foster and develop and sort of refine and hone that skill before it became something that was your profession? I always wrote, even before I could write, I wrote. So I would draw storybooks when I was like three or four years old. And they had little stories. Most of them were based on Little House on the Prairie, admittedly. Um, so they were <laughs> nice. kind of speculative fiction. Uh, but I would draw, draw the pictures and I would make my mother write the words in underneath as if I was writing children's books. So I, I would I would dictate uh, the books and she would write the words. And so before I could write, I was doing that. And yeah, I just always was really interested in, in people and um, stories. But actually, I think there's a reason that I... Um, and more of a nonfiction writer than a, than a fiction writer. And that's like, I'm very drawn to ideas and people and what makes people do certain things and the sort of strange, the hypocrisies in society and where are the places where we're told to think and feel one thing, but when we actually think and feel something else. So I've always kind of had my head, you know, in that sort of 
psychological swirl. So um, yeah, just throughout high school, I always, you know, I sucked at math. Like I literally was, I was like, <laughs> I was in like the, all the advanced humanities classes, but then in like, not even like, like practically the remedial math. Like I, I went to summer school multiple summers uh, in a row for, for math. So I could like pull my grade up to a C or something like it's so bad. I was like really <laughs> uneven. So I'd be like the super smart kid. And then I would show up and, summer school was like the, the drug dealers and the pregnant 15 year olds. And, um, we usually, we usually have a segment on later on the show. We usually have a segment where we do times table quizzes, but we'll, we'll cut that we'll, out of we'll this episode. Uh, yeah, I got my calculator app open though. So I, there's, I no, there's, there's, yeah, there's no prime, yeah. there's no prime number. Is it a prime number or not test? Oh. <laughs> I, I, I'm curious as to, because becoming a writer as a career seems it, it to me, just to be honest, it seems almost like becoming a professional golfer, just like so difficult. Ill, and so few people. <laughs> yeah. yeah I mean did you have a sense of that and you were just like I'm gonna make it against the odds and, and really working to find your voice because I we'll get to your book in a little a little later but I know you mentioned in the book that you you started off wanting to write fiction short stories and then kind of yeah. found your voice as an essayist yeah um, well I mean was that a really intentional process um no because well it was an intentional process to be a writer just because I I really couldn't do anything else but um you know, I, I'll just briefly, I mean, I grew up, my father was a, was a freelance composer and arranger. So he, and he, wow. you know, did a lot of things. He had been in academia for a while and like that was not for him. So we actually, he was at the university of Texas when I was part of, for part of my childhood. And then like, you know, didn't get tenure cause he couldn't get along with anyone. And so we moved to, um, <laughs> That's funny. to outside of New York city. And he just like really started his career over again at, at age 40 and was a freelance arranger and did a lot of, um, commercial, you know, television, commercial jingles. And, and it was a, you know, really just a working, you know, musician had an industry career, but always self-employed. And he just worked in the attic of our house and we, you know, he didn't, he did not have a steady job ever. So that was very normal to me. I did not, um, I, that's, I just internalized that kind of career. So it was not strange for me to do the same thing. And it's not like my parents said, oh, you know, you have to get, get a real job. Uh, I mean, my mother eventually couldn't take it anymore and, and <laughs> went on her own way and got a real job uh, and had health insurance and all of that. But, um, so yeah, so it's not like, being freelance was such a, such a, you know, wild card for me. But, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I, um, I, I discovered the essay thing because, you know, initially, like I thought if you were going to be a writer, you were either a novelist, a, a fiction writer, or like a newspaper reporter. And I, mm. I, I, I was kind of interested. I was very interested in journalism, but I didn't want to be a newspaper reporter because that would have required like knocking on doors and having people be mad at you and, and, you know, being just, <laughs> you know, interrupting people and being rude, which I cannot stand. So I yeah. started writing short stories in college. And um, when I graduated from college, I worked I moved to New York city and I worked as an editorial assistant at a glossy magazine, very devil wears Prada kind of situation, like, um, you know, high glamor, uh, very uh, abusive kind of, you know, and you were Anne Hathaway? office space. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I didn't work at Vogue. I did not work for Anna Wintour, <laughs> but it was same company. It was Condé Nast. And, uh, that was really, um, it was, it was very, <laughs> it was very traumatizing, but it was actually, 
an incredible education because I worked for an editor who she, she was like, I, she had been hired. She, she was from the art world. Like she did not, let's just say she, I'm not going to say she was illiterate. I'm not going to say that, but she did not have an editorial <laughs> sensibility. Let's just put it that way. She That's was funny. like from the fashion world and the art world and like very, very, very bright and creative in, in her own way, but like not somebody who was going to be like hands-on editing stories. And her, she was, we had this like really tumultuous relationship and would like yell at each other in the, in the office. But to her credit, she, she really like let me do her job. And so I was able to like edit magazine articles and get to know this world of freelancers. And even though this was a beauty magazine, it paid so well that we had a lot of literary writers writing essays for us. Um, you know, David Mamet wrote a piece and Mary right. Gateskill and Jane Smiley and Laurie Moore and like, just go down the list. And so um, I was able to see that there was sort of like a way to um, do literary work, but also get paid for it. And also this was the nineties when you could make quite a bit of money writing for these glossy magazines. So yeah, I was just yeah. thinking that it's sort of the heyday for yes. uh, opinion writers, right? There's all these magazines that people are yeah, subscribed not necessarily to, the papers, opinion. the op-ed sections. Right. Well, so the heyday, it was the heyday for for magazines. So you had Esquire, which was taken really seriously in the 80s and the 90s as as a as a, you know, literary journalism. They had they had really high-end fiction, um, GQ, Vogue, um, even Playboy, I mean, they, you know, people say, I, I get it for the articles. It's true. I mean, the, the articles, articles were, were yeah. excellent and it paid so well. Cosmopolitan actually was known to pay the highest per word rate of all the magazines. And it was like the most down mm. market, but it was paid the, the best. I never, I could never bring myself to write for Cosmo, but, uh, <laughs> so, but well, no, cause I was, it was literally just like about like, <laughs> like. Sex 19 toys. ways to know. make him crazy. I was like, yeah, it was like what you can do with Jello. I don't know. So, um, so that's funny. So I did that, and then I went to um, I got an MFA. I went to graduate school, and I thought I was again. I thought I was going to like write fiction, and at a certain point, I, I stumbled onto this essay form, and I realized that I could combine my journalistic interests with my more literary instincts. So I started writing these essays where I would kind of look at the world through the lens of my own personal experience and try to um, transcend my personal experience by, by, you know, making observations about the larger culture. And so that yeah. kind of became my shtick. So it, it seems like uh, the ability to articulate uh, opinions into beautifully worded essays and really describe them to the world is, is a trait that's really respected and, and rewarded uh, these days. Is that something you honed? At, at the LA times? Is that something that you continually work to improve or is this something that you've just kind of always had? Well, I definitely had a chance to hone it at the LA times. They never told me what to write. It was, it was such a great gig. Oh, wow. Um, and you know, I really came in there as, as an essayist. I remember when I started the, the job, I mean, they were looking for specifically a, a female op-ed columnist, like let's face it. So, you know, they needed it. <laughs> they needed a chick columnist. So I kind of, yeah. You know, threw my hat in the ring and I, I approached the columns as like little essays. And I know in the beginning people were like, what is she, how can she be a columnist? Like, that's not what she does. Um, but you know, my approach to opinion writing, opinion, op-ed writing is a little bit different. Like I really wanted to just offer 
counterintuitive ways of looking at things. I didn't want to necessarily come down on one side or the other. I didn't want to be predictable. So, you know, I had the the column had a a nice following, but I think one of the reasons that I never became like a syndicated columnist or, you know, somebody that was running in every paper in the country was because I was neither fish nor fowl. Like they couldn't quite figure out if I was a liberal or as a conservative. I mean, obviously it wasn't like a right winger, but I wanted to, I was all just sort of about nuance and so um, I, I approached the column really, I, I, what I wanted to do was invite my reader to think alongside me as I, you know, looked at the world and tried to yeah. it through my own thoughts. And that's really my approach to all of my nonfiction. Hmm. So it's almost like you're figuring out concrete thoughts in the writing itself. Would yeah. that, would that mean, be correct? Well, Joan Didion always said, I write in order to figure out what I think. So I yeah. think that that is true of a lot of writers, but, you know, to, to answer your earlier question, I think we're in this moment where what is passing for opinion journalism is really just hot takes. And, uh, you know, just yes. because you, these writers, they often have to come up with like two or three pieces, quote unquote, a day. And just the news cycle is moving so fast. And so really what they're doing is just sort of looking at something that's going on uh, anticipating what the general consensus will be among their tribe and saying the obvious thing and making their Twitter followers happy. <laughs> so you're really that's pandering to, you know, pre-existing opinion. And that's really frustrating. That's really interesting. And it's frustrating because I have no interest in doing that. And it's actually like completely flies in the face of the whole reason I wanted to be a writer. Like you, you want to surprise your readers, not just, uh, you know, not just feed them what they what they've come to expect. So, you know, yeah, I think your style of writing is also kind of vulnerable, too, because you're almost writing unfinished thoughts that connect to a finished thought at the end because you're kind of working through the process. Mm. And that's that's almost something that I've seen kind of die in society in the way we communicate. Like I'm expected to have fully finished opinions that I have complete allegiance to all the time. And yet the way that I kind of come up with opinions, and you wrote about this in your book, The Problem with Everything, that we'll get to in a little bit too, is that I kind of try opinions on like clothes in conversation. Like I kind of try it on. I feel, you know, how does it feel coming out of my mouth? You know, uh, what's the pushback? And I evaluate that and maybe I change my opinion right. there. But um, it's sort of like the one of the freedoms that's being lost a little bit is the freedom to be horribly wrong. Well, <laughs> like, and, and to yeah. say, I don't know. We don't have the yeah, yeah. and say, hey, I don't know. Uh, and and let's have a conversation about it. Yeah, I mean, so much of the way that I came to develop the ideas that I wrote about when I was in my 20s was I would get together with friends and we would talk about ideas. We would just like shoot the shit and you'd say like, oh, you know, I had this is like, here's a, you know, crazy theory I just came up with. Like, what do you think of this? And you yeah. it and the person would be like, Oh yeah, that's interesting. But like, have you thought of this? And like, I think you're, you know, totally off on this. And it was like a back and forth and you could tell, you know, that somebody was coming from a, a place of good intention, even if they were floating some like potentially really offensive theory. I mean, you could do all sorts of things. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You just cannot do now because people do not have these interactions in person nearly as much. Yeah. And I mean, I'm and arguing in good faith. Yeah, And I, I'm curious, like you guys, you know, you're of a generation, the rap on you is that like you experience everything through screens and that 
you know, you have these friendships and relationships that are taking place, you know, entirely like online. Is, is that true? Or are, are we making that up about you? Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll speak and I'll let you speak for yourself too, Hayden on this. Cause we're, we can be different on this. Um, I feel like one of the issues is that when, and we, we, we're kind of of a place where we grew up in an analog world too. And well, like, you I didn't bought have the LA times. Until... So there you go. Yeah. 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 Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't know. I didn't, I mean, I, I might've been rare in that sense, but I didn't have a smartphone <laughs> until 2013, 2014, around that time. Um, so I didn't really have this thing that I think, especially the generation after us has, which is your online identity really has to be fully representative of you or else you can get in trouble for it. Right. Mm. So they have to constantly be having opinions and sort of displaying these publicly, because if their identity online doesn't align with their identity in the quote unquote real world, I think that's like a deep conflict for them. I, I think the thing that's different for the younger people is they see the online world as the real world. And I think in many senses it is like you live on there more than you live in the real world, right? Your work is on a laptop. Your break time in between the laptop is on the phone. Like the real world is almost a novelty. You know, it's kind of like an event that we do. It's for exercise. It's for outdoor exercise. Yeah. It's like, I'm going to go for a walk. That's an exciting (laughs) thing. Cause I, Whoa, I'm out in the world. Like, you know, it's, it's, uh, I kind of get it. But that, that's, that's kind of where I'm at. I think I'm in a unique situation, and I think Hayden will speak to this too, where I have a lot of rewarding friendships where we just sit around and talk, and uh, especially people I work with, um, people like Hayden, as an example. We're, I mean, we're doing that right now, right? That's one of the beauties of this podcast. But yeah, I recognize it, but I don't, I don't think I'm as much a victim of it. Yeah, to, to touch on that real quickly, I think, uh, I think, Patrick, you hit the nail on the head where... Uh but I mean, the analog piece is interesting. There's that saying that uh, before smartphones, when uh, when telephones were tethered to the wall, humans were free. Um, <laughs> so I think that's interesting because it really did help facilitate sort of being present in the real world. And to Patrick's point, like we grew up in Patrick's 29, I'm 30, and we grew up in a world where we were having dirt clawed wars and we were skinning our knees and we were not necessarily wanting and crying when we didn't get a smartphone when we were seven, eight, nine years old. I see uh, other people that are near my age that have kids and they are glued to their, they're glued to the screens or glued to the iPads. And I think that sort of dampens a little bit of people's ability to communicate and grow into a well-adjusted human being. And, uh, that's one of the big challenges of our day is that you're having parents that are trying to instill simple values that are based in long rooted approaches toward becoming and growing into a, a, a good human being. And they're trying to compete with a slot machine, which is what, which is yes. what a lot of, which is what a lot of these phones and tablets are. Cause they're, specifically designed you have some of the smartest engineers in the world and the smartest game designers and app designers that are their sole goal is to keep people engaged in those platforms so that they can sell ads and i understand that from a business standpoint but we have to look at the second and third order uh impacts of that so it's definitely uh i feel fortunate to have grown up in a time before smartphones Mm -hmm. i feel empowered to know technology because i I mean, personal computers were a thing that we had in our house when I was in fifth, sixth grade. And so I feel fortunate to have have that foundation in technology while also having the benefit of not having it be sort of like the the main thing in my life as I was growing up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The the phone attached to the wall thing I think is huge. I mean, you know, so many, so much of my life in my, you know, my teens and my twenties and most of my thirties had to do with just talking to people. Like, you know, I had one of my students ask me a year or so ago, like, you know, what did you do when you were in your 
20s. Like, what did you do when you were my age? Because I actually teach in the same uh, graduate program that I was a student in, which is kind of kind of freaky. Oh, nice. But um, that's cool. But, Full circle. And, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, I said, God, you know, what did I do? And, you know, for one of the things I did was stare into space a lot. Like the sort of salient image of myself in my 20s is like sitting at my computer, like, you know, you know, possibly smoking a cigarette, but like staring out the window or staring at the, you know, the air shaft yeah. that, you know, passed for a window in my apartment and like just thinking about the next thing to write or something like that because you couldn't get online. Like, you know, literally, there, we're not even talking dial up modem. Like there was in the 90s, there was nothing. So if you were writing along and you got stuck for an idea you would just have to sit there and I would listen to music or I would just like space out. Um, but the other thing that I did, I would come home from work. I mean, I did have various jobs, but mind you, like I was always freelancing, but I was also always doing temp work in offices. Like I had every possible kind of job. Mm-hmm. So I would come home from work. And if I wasn't going out with my friends, I would call my friends. Right. And like you would, I would call them on my on my landline that was attached to the wall. And I would sit there and I would talk to my friend for an hour and then I would call the next person. And, and we were actually talking. We weren't, you know, doing, we weren't multitasking. We were, the phone was attached to the wall. Like you couldn't be in the car and be talking to somebody. You couldn't be walking down the street and be talking to someone. And so there was just such concentrated um, dynamics to any given conversation that is like completely absent now for all of us. Uh, I, yeah. even if I talk to somebody on the phone now, like I'm probably like screwing around on Twitter or something. I'm, I'm embarrassed to say like, yeah. it's terrible. It's true. It's even if you recognize it in yourself, it's hard to stop. Like I'm constantly getting mad at myself for being on different apps too long. And I'm like, what? Why can't I stop this? <laughs> like willing like, they're slot machines. These are it's slot so machines. Pull the yeah. lever. Yeah. 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 And then you yeah. get and then you get the serotonin, yep. the dopamine, the norepinephrine, and then yeah, you just you just get yourself dialed up. And it's te- I mean it's the it's the technology piece. I'm curious, Megan, as you've seen sort of technology grow and given your unique sort of the frame through which you have the wonderful contrarian mindset and you go about trying to sort of understand things and look at them from different angles. Are there certain points along sort of the last 20 or 30 years that you've seen as sort of impactful inflection points that have led to changes in the way that people interact, the way that people think, the way that people form opinions and ideas that you think are noteworthy or worth sharing? Hmm, That's a good question. Let me think about that. Well, it's like, remember when Facebook came around, what was that? Like everyone started joining it and probably like, 2006 or something. something. Yeah. Yeah. I'm such a late adopter. Like I come to everything like seven years late. So I think I joined Facebook (laughs) in like 2007 or something. Like I remember, and I remember like I was married at the time and my, well, actually we were, we were not married yet, but I was with my, my, you know, eventual husband and, you know, we were both exactly the same age and we were like, Oh, this thing, Facebook is everyone's doing like, let's look at it. And we were like, Oh my God, this person's on it. This person's on it. This person that we know <laughs> in this person, like we can be connected with this famous person. And it was really intoxicating um, in the beginning. And then I think there, there was probably something about having your thoughts displayed for if not all of the world, much of the world to see that really started um, giving people this anticipatory anxiety about what they said. Um, And then I guess by the time Twitter came along, Oh, actually, you know what too, I would probably even back up before Facebook, we had the advent of internet comments. So you had comments 
Uh, oh, on, on articles. I and think stuff. that actually, yeah, now that I think of it, I, that was the inflection point. Um, Amazon customer reviews. So my first book I published in 2001, uh, you know, fine, no big deal. It was reviewed. There was not, you know, there was the internet, but it wasn't like, to- it wasn't ubiquitous. My second book was published in 2003. And that is when the world of Amazon customer reviews revealed itself and it was so (laughs) like upsetting like it was like oh this you mean these random people can just pop up and misrepresent what my book is about and say that they hated it because um it did the cover did not the jacket they didn't it wasn't didn't match what they thought it was going to be based on the cover the the, the (laughs) type the type is too big or small yeah so um and it was like i was so thrown by it and um, I was like, this is wrong. This is not fair. Like, how can they say this? And what are people going to think? And like, you know, my mother would be like, oh, no, what are they saying? Like, this is, you know, this is terrible. <laughs> and it's so quaint now to think of it. But that was like the first time that happened. And so then I just think over time we became just inured to this. Like, oh, of course, people are going to say mean things about us. Of course, people are going to misconstrue willfully or not what we're saying. Um, and this is just something that we've come to live with and I don't think we're the better for it. Yeah. I, I think, I think that's an interesting point. And I've, I sort of, I sense that that's that the sort of the, the human desire to get attention either for a positive comment or if they can't come up with a positive comment or review or something along those lines, people often default to negative because negative attention is better than no attention at all. Yeah. And I think that the advent of technology and having platforms like in Amazon or like the comment section under an early article gives people the platform to then be able to amplify whatever their hopefully positive outlook are or post hopefully positive uh, opinions are. But oftentimes it defaults negative because it's a safer to be negative than complimentary in a lot of cases. So I think that brings it to a lot of the, that brings it to the cultural forefront. And as you mentioned with Facebook and other social media factors, it becomes sort of an echo chamber of there's a lot of negativity out there. And it's really unfortunate because when I look around in the world, I see a lot of positivity and I see mostly people trying to live, trying to live their best life. And then you go on, you go on Facebook or any of these things, especially Twitter, especially (laughs) Twitter. Twitter is a, Twitter is a dangerous and dark place. It feels like a mental uh, hospital these days. It's just like the world's biggest psychiatric ward. It does. It's like I, I had never really used Twitter. And then with the start of the pandemic, I, I got on a little bit just because there was a lot of like real time news happening. And I think there's nothing that parallels like that compares to Twitter in terms of real time news. Yeah. But God, I, I it took me about a day to be like, this is not a place I want to be. It's so, <laughs> like, ne- so negative. And I was only following people I liked. But simply by the algorithm working, it would then show me people that were like ranting against them. Mm. And it was just like. Such a strangely toxic place, right? Megan, you mentioned uh, you mentioned people leaving reviews, and I'm curious what sort of your opinion is of the term of somebody being a key a keyboard warrior. Um, I know that that's something that oh. I that I hear uh, I, I hear commonly thrown about, but given that you have experience sort of with with your writing and getting reviews and sort of your unique take and uh, sort of analysis of, uh, of society. Do you think keyboard warriors are a good thing? They're, they're a bad thing. Is it a misnomer <laughs> sort of what, what's, what's, what's your opinion about that well, term in general? Yeah. I mean, the, uh, these are people who are all too happy to, um, you know, eviscerate their opponents 
from a from a distance and probably anonymously. A safe distance. Uh, mm-hmm. But would never say it to your but face. Hiding, be- hiding behind an avatar. Yeah. Hiding behind an avatar. Yeah, yeah. A username that doesn't doesn't tie to. Them. I mean, we're not. And you know, just be clear. Like, we're not talking about reviews. Like, if you publish something, if you say anything, you are going to get criticism. You want you're going to be reviewed. You you know very well could be reviewed negatively. Like that's totally fine. That's, that's those, I, I wouldn't call like somebody review, somebody's going to review your book and th- for a certain publication, that's not a keyboard warrior. Like, you know, but if there are people who are just outraged uh, all day and, you know, often legitimately, or they have like real causes that they care about. Uh, but instead of actually going out and doing something to help those causes, they just like, stay at home and bang away on the Trump keyboard people on the internet um, yeah and the thing well, is i think yeah i think oh, go ahead. No, 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 i mean there's and the, the rewards for doing that are huge it's just, just like what you said i mean that the dopamine hit that you get from saying an obvious thing and having your echo chamber give you a bunch of likes like that's really seductive and the the rewards for for doing you know for being a keyboard warrior i i, I get i worry about these terms but like you know I, like i don't like to use yeah. i don't like to use the term social justice warrior for instance but but yeah, 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 I mean, yeah. the rewards the rewards for doing that are are very high and the penalties for not doing it can also be very high so a lot of people just kind of feel like they have no choice so I want I want to transition into and I think this is a good place to transition into your book The Problem with Everything. So I'm I I have to look at my Kindle percentage, but I think I'm like three quarters of the way through it right now. <laughs> it's really fun. It it really flows along well, and it, it uh, I hadn't read some of your writing since uh, I stopped getting the Times, oh, but it reminded me uh, how much I enjoyed yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's great though, but it, it, ostensibly it's sort of feels like the the to me it feels like sort of a disconnect where you're a progressive left-leaning person you want to identify with that side of the political spectrum or at least like you you see yourself as on the good side of morality which i would agree with but you're having trouble connecting with sort of the people that claim that as well yeah i guess i know i know it talks about feminism a lot but it felt like a broader point to me it felt like yeah. a disconnect with sort of the you want to do good and yet you're finding for some reason a disconnect between the other people that want to do right. good. I wanna, right. I want to I want to be on the right side of history, but maybe yes. maybe by dint of my age, I am on the wrong side of history. Yeah. <laughs> um, can you can you can you real quickly for our listeners tell us about the book when you started writing it sort of what give us give give the listeners sort of a high level yes. overview of what the book is about yes and actually it it it's to your question exactly like you know is this is this about feminism or is it about much more than that so I started the book in two thousand fifteen or two thousand sixteen and it was really going to be very very sort of narrowly about the way the conversation around women's issues had changed um, over the last several years. So I, you know, I grew up in the seventies and the eighties, like to me being a girl was like better than being a boy. Like like the girls were doing better. It was like never a better time to be a girl. Like there, you could be a tomboy. You could be like, you know, that was cool. Like you could do sports, you could do whatever you wanted. Um, And I noticed you know, around sort of 2014 or so, they're like all the conversation online or at least much of it around women's issues had to do with this idea that it was like a terrible time to be a woman and that women were under the thumb of this patriarchy. And like, we were in danger everywhere we went and 
like, you know, you know, we needed to, we, you know, any given man had more power than any given woman. And it was so contrary to what I had grown up with. And so I was interested in exploring why there was a generational divide there. So initially the book was going to be called, you are not a badass because, um, you know, like there was this thing online that. always like, it's yeah. like, oh, being a, you know, being a woman is so hard that even just getting out of bed every day and like going to work and paying your rent on time is, is you know, fighting down the patriarchy at every turn. Yes. That makes you a badass. <laughs> just the mere, mm. you know, the fact that you can even brush your teeth, you know, in this society mm. makes you a badass. So it was going to kind of be a manifesto along those lines. And I assumed that. Hillary Clinton would be the next president. And I assumed everybody would be able to handle this kind of critique. And obviously that did not happen. And the me too movement came around and, um, and then just, there were so many sort of larger cultural issues around identity politics and, and speech and what was considered, you know, sort of, you know, good being a good person on the left and, you know, the sort of expanding definitions of things like harm and, and violence. And, and I, so I was much, I was interested in looking at these issues more broadly. And so it became, um, it became about more than just, uh, than just women's issues. Interesting. I, I do get what you're talking about where you go from somebody like Obama in office, which was such like a hopeful kind of like, oh, like from a social issue perspective, just looking at a black man as the president, just it just looks like we're moving in the right direction. Right. Yeah. And then I, I do think a lot of people when Trump won felt like, OK, there's obviously this mass amount of people that voted for Trump in the country and they just assume that everybody voted for him out of racism or, or some sort of evil ideology like that. Right. And maybe now they're kind, kind of trying to uncover, like, who are the racists, I guess? Yeah. Who are the, why are there so many, quote unquote, bad people? I don't well, know. Well, I mean, one of the terrible things that came out of the emergence of Trump was that the left was able to use the Trump emergency as an excuse just to shut off, shut down all critical faculties. It was like, oh, we can't have any sort of, you know, intellectual integrity or honesty around like pretty complicated issues because we need all hands on deck and everything has to be reduced to like, you know, good. Yeah. You know, this is good. This is bad. You're on the right side of history. You're on the wrong side of history. You're racist. You're not a racist. Like, you know, and it's, I, I understand the logic there, but it's a very childish sort of logic. Like, you're, you know, you're dealing with the complexities of the culture with a blunt instrument and that's what Trump is. I get what you're saying. And so, you know, I, the thing is, I had been always interested in looking at issues that way from the very first piece mm. I ever published in my life to just about every single one of those LA times columns. I was really, I wanted to look at things in a nuanced way. And I, I don't, I would not have been able to write the way I write if I was starting my career now. I mean, suddenly the, the values that were, you know, rewarded, in, you know, among journalists and among thinkers and writers were suddenly being, being penalized because it was like, oh, well, you know, we don't have time for nuance now because, um, there, you know, tr we have a fascist in office and everybody's about to lose all their rights. And it's, you know, we're living in the handmaid's tale and 
there are babies in cages yeah on and on and on and so which is a really scary <laughs> sentence which is not the time for nuance is a very scary sentence. yeah um yeah I do, I do feel like as a journalist as a thinker as a public thinker a public communicator you the you know that group of people is sort of like the canaries in the coal mine in terms of um ringing the alarm bell on how discussion is being affected by this new paradigm, I'd say. Yeah. Cause I don't, I don't feel it as much like in my life. There's a few people that I know from high school. I look at their Facebook every once in a while to see what's going on in social justice world. Mm. <laughs> and I go like, really? That's what they're focusing on. <laughs> um, but like in terms of the people in my life, I've always felt a disconnect there. Interestingly enough, cause I, I don't, I don't really have any people that I talk to hang out with that are overly concerned with these things or sort of represent that extreme that I think a lot of people are feeling right now in the sort of public discussion world. Right. Is that, is that true? Uh, I believe you because those people, they're not very many of them. I mean, they're so so, loud. They're They're so loud on social media, but they're a tiny, tiny sliver of the population. And yet they have such outsized influence because we've allowed them to. I mean, major institutions are, are firing professors and suspending professors and like, you know, deplatforming speakers and canceling their ideas festivals and pulling books and, and, you know, refusing to screen films because a very, very tiny minority of people are yelling loudly on social media. And those people don't represent what probably 95% of the American people value or want to, want to think about and want to have in their culture. And so it's just so, frustrating because <laughs> it's like it's, it's so yeah. right, it's so logical the like the logic yeah. is right in front of us and yet nobody has the the courage to just step up and say like i'm not gonna be bullied by like somebody with an anime avatar with with like you know 500 people <laughs> with anime avatars yeah. those people are like yeah. bossing around heads of museums and like it's crazy yeah so when when you talk about i know you mentioned in our in our um questionnaire form like the new culture war that's an interesting topic for me because a war would imply sides right and and i think correct me if i'm wrong i think the idea that is being warred over is free speech right like what are the limits of speech um, this sort of fear of offending because if one person is offensive, they're loud and they can convince other people to be offended. Is, is that sort of what's at play here or is it something different? Um, I think like, in, you know, overall that is what's in play. I mean, yeah, it's hard. The new culture wars, you know, you've got to give books a subtitle that will kind of like, you know, bring in, bring exactly. in a lot of people. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I mean yeah. that it's not culture wars. It's, it's like, we associate them with the right. I mean, you guys are probably a little bit too young, but in the eighties, it was, it was the, the Republicans, it was the right wing that had the monopoly on the culture wars. So it was, that was, you know, um, purity, the purity policing came from the right, you know, historically, like, you know, evangelical preachers telling people, you know, telling people not to have sex and saying that homosexuality is a sin. Just say say no. uh, Yeah. I mean, you know, Tipper Gore, who was not a Republican, but, you know, she she famously had this campaign in the 80s to put warning labels on heavy metal uh, records. 
because they were damaging <laughs> children. Oh yeah, it was a huge thing. Al Gore's wife, and you know, she, everybody made fun of her for this. And she had, you know, there were congressional hearings where she was testifying about how damaging this was for children. And like, you know, Frank Zappa came in wearing a suit and you know to oppose her. I mean, it was great. But, but like, yeah. So That's this funny. is the kind of stuff that that we associate with purity policing. And so, you know, there's this idea of the horseshoe theory, right? Which is the two extremes, two ideological extremes will, will end up touching each other like a, like a horseshoe. Uh, so, you know, the, the, the purity on the right is now almost, you know, indistinguishable from the purity on the left. It's just, it's over different things. So if you don't say exactly the right things about trans issues, for instance, which is something that nobody talked about until 10 minutes ago and the vocabulary around is changing every Uh five minutes. Uh, if you don't handle that exactly right, then you are on the wrong side of history. You are to be shunned. You are to be punished in much of the same way that those, those social conservatives were, were doing like, you know, 20 years ago, 20, 30 years ago. So, um, the culture wars have always existed. It's just a matter of like, you know, who's, who's fighting them the hardest. And right now it's being fought among the left. And I think the right is just like sitting back and like laughing at us. (laughs) (laughs) I think so. Yeah. Yeah. You've illuminated something for me. I never thought about it actually like that, which is the, the Gen X perspective, because you saw this as something that you deal with on the other side of the political spectrum, right? Not in your own party, your own like political group, right? And, and now you're seeing it as part of your own group and you're like, wait, we used to make fun of that. (laughs) What did we become that and worse? We were the ones saying like, (laughs) let him, you know, live and let live. Like, you know, the, the right was all up in everybody's business. Like, you know, and, and it was, it was the, you know, the left, the liberals that were saying like, who cares? Like who, what, who cares what people do in their bedrooms? Like who, you know, why should I, you know, we, we weren't into labels. Like, you know, it was just sort of like, let's just, you know, all, all work together. There was this idea of being colorblind, uh, you know, around race. <laughs> and then when Obama came around, the idea was that we were post-racial. So, you know, we have yeah. a, we, we have a black president. Uh, so we must be in this post-racial age. And so that, you know, you sort of strove for this like collective, um, ideas of progress. Like we were all in this together. We weren't going to get caught up in, you know, details about identity and things like this. We were all just going to have sort of a similar, similar goal to like, you know, march forward into history. And now the left is just getting so caught up and, you know, saying like, well, if, if you say you're colorblind, that's actually racist. And, and Obama yeah, is now problematic yeah. for reasons that I can't quite figure out. But, um, you know, in, in, you know, I think it's sort of the, the Black Lives Matter sensibility. I, I don't think Barack Obama is a hero by any stretch. Interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah, I see what you're saying. And, I, and I, I'm kind of understanding how like there's two things actually coming into this conversation. That I didn't really think about that. The the political switch and then the idea that as public thing, like I'm not in a career or a sector where I'm affected by this as much. And so it doesn't seem like as big of a problem. It just seems like something to kind of ignore, like a little craziness. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I, I do see, and I have like learned by listening to people, like it is beginning to have an incredibly outsized influence on the yeah. world. Um, especially as it kind of takes over academia. Yeah. Is that correct? Do you see it in your students? Yes. So in faculty? yeah. So what happened was that there were spasms of this kind of, um, critical theory, post-structuralist kind of uh, 
approach to reading, for instance, in the, in the eighties in the nineties. I mean, so, you know, the, I, this idea that you would approach like, you know, a, a piece of literature or a film or something from the point of view of, you know, what it's saying about the identities of these characters or what it's saying about capitalism or something, just instead of like, you know, taking it as a piece of art. So that kind of approach yeah. to the world was around. Um, and then it kind of went away. You know, there was political correctness in the nineties. That's what we yeah. called it. And, and, but political correctness was like an in joke. Um, excuse me. Political correctness was like an in joke among the left. Like, you know, if you were t- truly politically correct, you would make fun of political correctness because you weren't worried about like yeah. having to prove, you know, your, your liberal bona fides all the time. You know, like everybody knew you weren't a racist. And so it's you could certainly... make a racist joke. <laughs> that was kind of what it was. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. Good faith. And correct me if I'm wrong. It only really affected politicians, right? Like political correctness is not shackling you as a comedian or a public. No, figure I mean, time, it was, right? you know, and like the thing is yeah. you were, everyone was like, if you were able to like, you know, make fun of people of different races. Like it was actually treating them as humans. Like you were, you were granting them a sort of humanity because you were able to transcend their identity category anyway. So, but what happened was a lot of people, the colleges, especially liberal arts colleges became captured by this social justice mentality. This idea that, um, you know, we, we live in a white supremacy and that everything from history to literature, anthropology, you know, art should be viewed through this lens of capitalist patriarchy and that, um, you know, there's this sort of fundamental white guilt, intersectional theory. I mean, you hear the term intersectionality come a lot, come around. Yeah, can you touch yeah. on that yes, really quickly? Yes, okay. yeah, <laughs> Terminology wise, what All right, is well, that? Well, so yeah. really quickly. Hayden's new to okay, it. <laughs> so yeah, you're going <laughs> to, your life will never be the same. Um, it will be, yeah. it will Woo! be exactly the same actually. So, so inter, inter, <laughs> intersectionality is a concept that, uh, came about, um, in, the, in a legal context. So a law professor named Kimberly Crenshaw, who was teaching at UCLA at the time, I believe it was 1989, um, applied the term intersectionality in the case they were, there was, um, there was a, a workplace discrimination lawsuit involving general motors where, um, uh, women working in the factories, most of them were women of color were, um, were claiming that they weren't getting paid as much. They were being discriminated against. And Mm -hmm. so the, the idea was to use this intersectional framework to look at the ways that they were being discriminated against, not only because they were female, but because they were black. And this was an important way to look at how something like this might play out. So this is actually perfectly rational. And this is a a very useful framework in certain contexts. This one uh, is a good example. Um, But the thing is, over time, this notion of intersectionality just got watered down and diluted and and just just it just became shorthand for, um, uh, you know, white women need to shut up. And, uh, you know, we, whatever, whoever is the most marginalized needs to be sort of given power in a way like it became sort of shorthand for another shorthand term, which is the oppression Olympics. So, so basically this, this pretty Mm -hmm. narrowly applied, um, and useful legal framework got completely misapplied in the, in the larger social context. And it was taught, you know, it came up in liberal arts schools, it just sort of manifested everywhere. So what you ended up having was like large swaths of people graduating from colleges, 
the Ivy League schools, Yale, places like Oberlin, Wesleyan, like in the sort of liberal arts schools, the kinds of places that then feed into big institutions like the New York Times, um, cultural institutions, other mm-hmm. universities. You had these people who had been indoctrinated in this sort of misapplied intersectional framework, social justice kind of sensibility, then come out and enter media fields and enter the cultural sphere and bring these ideas with them. And so what you now have are these these workplace battles that are pretty generational. You've got like upper management that are sort of, you know, Gen X and baby boomer people who consider themselves liberals mm-hmm. um, being told by these millennials and Gen Zers that we're on the wrong side of history because we didn't, we don't see everything through the lens of racial oppression or gender oppression like you know identity identity, right so that's the culture war as it's manifested on the left mostly and and i and it really comes from the way these the way these things are taught in in liberal arts institutions and now you just have these you know people coming out and really dominating dominating um the the really influential cultural institutions that's really interesting. And, and to be honest, like I've paid some attention to this. That's the first time like the actual stakes have been explained to me in terms of like uh, maybe some some bad or um, inflated ideas having a negative impact on the world. Yeah. What I would what I would really like to hear from you, because you, you actually talk about some specific instances where this kind of theory shuts down important conversations. Like I think and I want to think of a good example, like maybe the wage gap between men and women is a good place where this kind of theory can negatively impact like workable solutions right. because you can't approach that problem and find the real reasons that it exists <laughs> in addition to some, right. like, of course there's some, there's oppression in society, right? But th- there have to be other factors at play as well. And if you're not allowed to address those factors, then you can actually be self-defeating That's right. with this That's ideology. right. So, right. So the gender wage gap, we, what we hear all the time is 79 cents on the dollar. Sometimes it's 77 cents on the dollar. So, you know, w- w- women make 79 yeah. cents for every dollar a man makes. Okay. Well, that might be true. It's definitely true that there's a gender wage gap. It's definitely true that w- women yeah. over the course of their lives earn less than men. Uh, now we need to ask ourselves why that is. <laughs> is it because there are these, uh, yeah. you know, snidely whiplashes, uh, you know, in the, in the executive, you know, in the HR departments, figuring out how they can pay women less? Maybe sometimes, but most of the time it's because of a whole constellation of choices that women make. So um, women are most likely going to leave the workplace for periods of time to have children. Um, and so if you're measuring somebody's <laughs> salary potential based on how many hours they're putting in, women are going to make less women make women work fewer hours over their lifetimes than men do in the aggregate. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's these, you know, these maternal reproductive considerations. Um, they're the fact that women tend to, in the aggregate, uh, make choices. They, they choose careers that are going to allow them more flexibility, so they can have children um, and those careers are often going to just pay less. If, if you've got a woman graduating from law school, maybe she's going to do corporate litigation for a while, but after a certain period of time, she might choose to do a job that doesn't require working 80 hours a week. Hmm. Um, so those are what plays into this. And now the question then is like, 
is it fair that women are the ones that uh, have to gestate and lactate and take this time off from work? <laughs> yeah. No, it is not. No, it is not fair. Yeah. But um, is this, is it some grand conspiracy? <laughs> it's a conspiracy of nature. <laughs> So it's just like, you know, what I always say, mother nature is the ultimate misogynist. Uh, it, you know, yeah, so, that's a good so quote. They, so the, you know, here's the thing. That's our episode title. Yes. <laughs> so it's like, if we want to figure out how to solve the, the gender wage gap, I mean, first we have to ask ourselves, is it solvable? Probably not entirely. If there are ways that it is solvable, we can't address, we can't figure out what that is unless we just acknowledge the truth which is that women are stuck doing this unless until you can like genetically engineer (laughs) binary reproductive responsibilities at a society. uh, We're kind of stuck with this. And, and this is, and as long as men are uh, well represented in science, I don't think we're working toward that goal. Well, but then men are men overrepresented in science. They're overrepresented in some fields, but do you, in some scientific fields, but do you know the reason for that? It, I, you know, testosterone in utero exposure <laughs> leading to more mathematical minded brains. And, well, and, and the fact is an affinity toward the, those the, subjects. Well, I mean, there's no evidence that women are worse. Uh, it, are, are, there's no evidence that women lack aptitude in things like um, engineering and, and coding and, and hard scientists. There mm-hmm. is evidence that they tend to, uh, in general, in the aggregate to be less interested. Now, is that because they have been sort of bullied out of those areas because of, you know, boys clubs and being, being, uh, discouraged in school, maybe a little bit, but the fact is that there's been 20 years now of like endless initiatives to get girls interested in STEM and they haven't really worked. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. and, and actually the reason, I mean, I just, you know, you talk to evolutionary biologists and brain scientists and, you know, and, and honest brokers in the social sciences about this. And the reason is that women's brains tend to be when they're, when women are good at math and science, they tend also to be good at languages. Um, and, and, mm. and, and social, you know, areas that involve working with people and, more communications types of disciplines. Men who are good in STEM tend to just to be like very good in only that. So the, the reality is that women have more choice. <laughs> they can go into STEM, but they also have these skills in these other kinds of fields. And so they can, they can have a choice and men who are good in STEM, just, yeah. they just do that one thing. And that's a lot of what's playing out here. But the fact is, even to say that, like a lot of my friends, you know, some some of them are my former friends on the left, now. they would get like really mad at me and saying that I'm like apologizing yeah. for the patriarchy and all this. Well, no, we need to like <laughs> acknowledge the truth of nature. Yeah, it's 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 looking for real causes, looking for the reality of the problem, even if the reality is uncomfortable with what you previously believed. Right. Like maybe it comes out that the wage gap is entirely due to patriarchal oppression, in which case I'll change my opinion. Yeah. Um, but but it, it's about the ability to have those conversations is more important to me. Right. Um, the other thing I'll say is it's I've always found that a little weird in terms of because I I grew up. Uh, and I went into a STEM degree in college. Um, but I remember in elementary and middle school and high school specifically remembering that the amount of successful female students not only outnumbered the men, it almost looked like men weren't at the school when it came to these like <laughs> academic ceremonies. 
Like, I remember my dad being so shocked at our middle school ceremony. They gave out 50 people came on stage because they got all A's throughout sixth, seventh, eighth grade. 50 people. Of those 50 people, the only boys were me and my friend Alex. Two out of the 50 were on stage. Congrats to you guys. Every other award after that went to girls. It was a whole yeah. promotion well, ceremony. All girls on the stage. School. I mean, women. This is this exactly. is why it drove me crazy that suddenly the conversation was like, oh, the world is terrible for women. Like, you know, really? Like women are, you know, the educational attainment among women is much higher. The f- women are like buying their own real estate. They just, just like, you know, the, in, in the general sense, we're, we're far outpacing men so like yeah yeah (laughs) do you think a lot of that a lot of that is going to be tough to go away simply because of the physical differences like with all that being said i still would be like i am glad i'm a man in many senses because i I don't feel as vulnerable walking around just physically i guess like i'm a man who is very into training martial arts Mm -hmm. who is very into feeling not vulnerable and yet, and I have a lot of female friends and I ask them this question a lot. And, it, and it's sort of like, the, there's always considerations that they have to make in terms of their yeah. environment. And I think they're way braver than me. Like I would never wear heels because <laughs> I can't run in them, right? Um, <laughs> well, you carry them in your bag so and you I, put them as on long when as, you get to your desk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. All the tricks yeah. I don't know. But uh, I, I just, I, I feel like as long as that's present and it will be present until we turn into metahumans, I suppose. Um, I just feel like it's always going to be an element yeah, that's going to make things there, there is that. I mean, you know, it's funny. I, I had this conversation with a male friend recently and I was like, you know, you do realize that like, you know, every time a woman walks into a parking garage, she's like very aware of <laughs> how far away her car yeah. is. Like if she's holding her keys, who else is in there? Like, yeah, I mean, I think they, they, it becomes so internalized that you don't even notice it. It's just sort of part of the metabolism of your awareness. But I, but I would say, you know, the fact is that jobs, the reason that men are not doing as well economically as women in the in the working classes and the lower classes is because jobs that require physical strength are being automated uh, out, away from us. So, you know, you had all these opportunities for men that were afforded to them because of their physical um, a- attributes. So, you know, men who weren't particularly yeah. like going to use their brains for work were able to make a middle-class living because uh, because of brute strength. And that was an advantage that they had over yeah. women. And that is an advantage that is like diminishing rapidly. I feel like Hayden, you have the stat on transportation, the truck driver aspect. Uh, Do you have that knowledge? I feel like it's something you would Oh, like what percentage of truck drivers? I feel like it's like one in five men in the United States works in trucking Mm. or something. Oh, yeah. 20 or 30%. There's a lot of fields like that that are going away. So there are over 10. Yeah, thank you for... I knew you would know this. (laughs) Man, I forgot I knew this until you you reminded me. Are you an aspirational trucker? That's... uh, Yeah. yeah. (laughs) It's just something you would know. (laughs) Well, so it was interesting that uh, that there's... uh, that the most common job among high school educated males in America is transportation of some sort, whether that's a delivery driver, whether it's last mile, whether it's long haul truck, longshoremen, longshoremen, it's, it, it has to do with transportation. You drive, <laughs> okay. you, you drive it. You, yeah. yeah, exactly. You drive, you drive a vehicle, you're a forklift yeah. operator in a warehouse. And as a lot of the, 
technologies coming out, it's going to cause an, a massive existential crisis among uh, the your high school yeah. educated men in America who will no longer have a a career or a job that's in line with their identity. Right. And it's interesting that a lot that 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 cohort, one of the highest suicide rate cohorts in the United States, is fifties uh, and sixties uh, males. And uh, the dog agrees with me. Yes, the well. dog is and, a male. Uh, <laughs> He's like, you're talking to me. The dog is the dog. The dog's worried about getting automated away as well. And um, so, uh, yeah, that's definitely an interesting, uh, interesting piece because as we have um, autonomous vehicles and um, and you have forklifts that are running in in like uh, just th- that don't need human intervention it's going to be interesting to see as we sort of refine where people fit into society where they get their identity from we're going to have we're going to be at odds with ourselves in a big that way is a forward. really important point and I, I feel like a lot of these extreme male movements are a response to that like this might be unpopular i don't know and i don't i don't have an articulated thought here i'm just going to share kind of the uh seedling of an idea <laughs> which i think is okay um, um, but I, I do feel like there's increasingly less opportunity for men to truly feel like masculine in a traditional sense, like powerful in a, in a traditional sense, I guess. Like a lot of the physical sports are kind of going away, being replaced by like computer things. And there's not as much of the roughhousing, the wrestling, the playing when you're younger. It's oh, because the kids safe can't go outside. Now. Yeah. Yeah, you're not fighting. Can't skin like, your like, knees, right. can't get your clothes dirty. Yeah, like youthful, like competition amongst your peers was like such a, it's such an important thing. And like, I, I do think the importance of sports, especially when you're younger, is not talked about mm-hmm. enough. Like you learn a lot of things in terms of interpersonal communication, interaction, body language, things like that. Getting uh, my trophy for coming in 11th place. Yeah, too, and learning so. how to lose too yeah. is very important. <laughs> yep. I, I, it's, it's interesting. I, I played sports growing up and I have a couple of the trophies from teams that I was really proud of where we came, yeah. where we won the championship or something like that. But I went out of my way. I have a pile of trophies. Like this is in the AYSO, like the American youth yeah, soccer yeah. So, uh, organization or whatever. And it's really interesting that I, I went out of my way to grab a trophy that I got where my team finished in 12th place in the league <laughs> out of like 14 teams. And Every team from like fourth through 14th got the same size trophy. That's so funny. And so I have a trophy now that is from 12th place when, yeah, so that was astonishing. I used to have a Tupperware container from swimming. Yep. I would get ribbons or medals every time I competed. And I'd swim in like 12 events every meet. So Mm -hmm. I had like a giant, like put it under the bed, plastic box. And they all said like Junior Olympics, third place. (laughs) Yeah. Trophy trophy culture is interesting. Um, That's new to me. Megan, I want as a I thoroughly know. mediocre I have, no, I have yeah, very exactly. few trophies from my from my childhood. Damn, but you <laughs> they, have writing awards. They, Those yes, are more but important. I actually, right, I actually won. I actually won, and I got the trophies. So it's, yes. Yeah, <laughs> you won something. Wait, there's, there's no there's no participation medals in <laughs> right. writing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Megan, one thing that I see uh, is present in your book, or at least it's a, it's called out on on the cover of the problem with everything that I think isn't fully understood is gaslighting. And I think it's fascinating that I think it's fascinating that we have a term that's so used, but I feel like it's generally misunderstood. It's under understood. And it's fascinating to me that like, I remember watching that movie with my mom when I was a little kid gaslight. It's astonishing to me that, that we have that term, first of all, in our social lexicon that is born completely out of a play and a movie from the early 1940s. And I'm curious if you could explain what gaslighting is, because a lot of people don't know what it is. (laughs) 
And if you could give a couple of contemporary examples of how people yeah. gaslight oh. others, I think it would really help inocu- inoculate our listeners against being gaslighted themselves. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's funny. I didn't know what it what it meant um, until pretty. Does recently. anybody know what well, it, it is? Doesn't I, mean anything. I, I, I have it's to one say, of these, like, things. I have to say, when it when it first started coming around, I I thought I was like uh, not in on something. I was like, what the fuck is this word? That I, keeps I thought it meant like, like, what is like, gaslighting? like setting everything on fire. I first encountered it when I, <laughs> I, I no, I first encountered it when I wrote a column in the LA Times. It, it had to do. I mean, this probably was like two thousand nine or ten or it had to do with the trans situation a trans kid i don't know and i was very like you know whatever i i I did something i i did something wrong in the column like i dead named it was a trans kid that had committed suicide and and i was very like compassionate and supportive of the kid but i but i named the i dead named the child because the parents I was, we're still calling it, whatever. It was like 2010. Okay. Can, can you, can, can, what does that Dead mean? Name, Dead meaning, name, like, you use the, the name, name that, the, like, yeah. it was, um, you use the name that they had before they transitioned. So if they're now a girl. Yeah. So if you, so, oh, like, Bruce, so, so if, if you became, right. If you, Bruce, to say Bruce yeah. Jenner is to dead name Caitlyn Jenner, for instance. Okay. Even when he, even when Caitlyn's alive? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It doesn't oh, have okay. anything so to do with you. Because when you transition, you're, you're, the gender that you were assigned at birth is, is dead. That person is dead. Okay. Okay, okay anyway. got you. Yeah, so dead name, yeah, dead, dead name, dead naming. So yeah, the, I guess to touch on that real quickly, my sense of dead naming is that it sort of delegitimizes, I guess, uh, the person's choice yeah, still to be able on to, to, okay. to define their identity. Is that how you see it? Got you. It's, I can understand that. Yeah, that's a whole other set of confusions. Yeah, but, that's a whole other thing. But going into <laughs> but gaslighting. Anyway, so I had written this column, and then like the some trans people started getting mad at me on Twitter, as is their want, and uh, somebody said something. Well, you gaslit the trans community by dead naming this person. And I was like, what does that mean? Like, does that mean that I set fire? Like I got them all upset. Like I was imagining like having like a bunch of like hay on the ground and lighting gas, pouring gasoline on it and lighting on a fire. I was like, okay, like, I don't know. But so much later I figured out that, uh, so gaslight the movie. And it was a play before that is about, um, this, this guy that, tries to make his wife think that she's crazy. Like, you know, she'll walk into a room and he will have moved something like moved, I, I moved the piece of furniture and she would say, did you move that? And he's like, yeah, no, it, no, it, no, it was always there. Like, no, you're, you're imagining this. <laughs> so it has to do with making people feel like they're crazy by denying reality. Is that, is that a fair, does that sound right? So <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I'd, I'd say so. The one example, and to tie it to the term itself, is that uh, in the movie or in the in the movie that I saw, which is also part likely of the play, is that they had a physical gas gas lamp or a gas light on the stairwell or something like that, and that the uh, the antagonist, the the guy who was trying to make the woman question her sanity, would change the brightness of the gas light every time to the point where she would start to question whether or not what she was seeing in reality was, was accurate. And she started to question her own reality and that that's the term where gaslighting comes right. from. Um, so yeah, I, yeah, I, I agree with okay. you completely. And I'm curious as, as we, as, as we've seen that grow and it's sort of built on this, this foundation of making people question their own sanity or question whether or not their worldview is accurate. How do you see that being used maliciously in today's world? If at well, all, well, it's just it doesn't. It's just being used like if you don't like what somebody is saying. 
means. Like when they say, like if, some, if, you, <laughs> if you don't like what somebody's saying, you can be like, you're gaslighting me. And, and that in and of itself is like gaslighting the other person because it's saying like, I, I just don't, I don't, it's not that I disagree with you. I'm denying your reality. Like it's not. So, I mean, I guess, <laughs> so, you know, Teen Vogue became very, very uh, social justice uh, oriented uh, right around the time that Lauren Duca wrote a piece called Donald Trump is gaslighting America. And the piece in and of itself, like didn't say much. It was just sort of like the blue, you know, blueprint you know oh this is terrible we're being you know led by a fascist moron and but like the because the headline had gas was using gaslight like this like suddenly teen vogue just was like enlivened and became this like you know incredibly culturally relevant like progressive entity and and it became and Mm -hmm. yeah so right so gaslight is one of these sort of new culture words um you know like like a a race like instead of saying you know you're you're ignoring me they'll say like you're erasing me (laughs) it's like and so it's really strange yeah so so it's almost like this club and and in order to be part of the club and to i hear the word virtue signaling a lot but it sounds like more of the signaling is you're just signaling you're part of the club by using the set terms that we all collectively agree are things we have to use it's a secret passcode to stay in the club interesting it's funny listening because i've paid so little attention (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I think I feel lucky uh, in that sense um, that I haven't I've had sort of a luxury or a privilege rather. Yes, that is your privilege. You better check that particular privilege. It is my privilege. Exactly. Yeah. That's 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 interesting. I mean, do do you think that this is ultimately damaging to a whole generation? Is that sort of the um, importance of the problem that that it makes a generation more fragile or less, uh, and in that sense, like less able to deal with adversity in in the real world? Yeah, I, I'm not the first to point that out. There have been studies, like you know, the the helicopter parenting and the snowplow parenting, keep invoking all these. All yeah, this stupid jargon, that. but yeah, the new one is the new one is yeah, lawn lawnmower What's parenting, <laughs> where they where they remove the obstacle as if the kid was pushing a lawnmower, and the parent just removes the obstacle altogether so that they have an uninterrupted path to continue pushing their. Oh, lawnmower. I thought that was That's snowplow funny. parenting, where they like actually. Oh, it's, it's maybe snow, in Southern uh, California. As soon, as soon as he said snowplow parenting, I was like, yeah, maybe that's the East Coast <laughs> version. Yeah, of East Coast parenting. Yeah. 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 For the for, the, for the non-lawn yeah. havers of the East Coast, yeah. yeah. In, in LA, you would have you actually have Gardner to come and do the lawnmower. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I, I remember there's a there's a moment in your book that's sticking out. It's where you talk about being on the subway, and they're kind of uh, the younger women are kind of prodding and playing along with the homeless guy. Yeah. And it, it, it's sort of like you you illustrate the point that when you live in this this little online society and you use these words, it changes how you think and it changes how you perceive things. So, so, you know, a situation where to you, you would have just brushed it off and moved on with your life to them. It becomes this sort of like defining moment that they, they need to tell the world about and everybody needs to console and reflect on it together and, and sort of, um, feel important i guess is the ultimate goal of a lot of this right like there seems to be an innocent goal to the end of this well that's i mean i would ask you like ultimately with all of these things that we're talking about you know having so much grievance and seeing everything through the lens of how this is making you a victim or diminishing you or erasing you or whatever it is like what are we getting out of this like what is to be gained is it a feeling of being affiliated with like a larger movement or a club or a tribe, like 
what is it? Yeah. I think it's ultimately like what people want to gain out of most things, right? Which is connecting to a larger whole. You use the words so you belong. Look, I have all these people that agree with me. I'm one of many, so I must be right. Um, Which is sort of, I think, what goes along with most tribes and societies, I guess. Um, Yeah. You know, it's it's a world where you kind of have to find your own meaning. And this is kind of one way to do it, I guess. Yeah. I, I To piggyback on that i think it's uh i think i think you hit, I, th- I think you hit the nail on the head with it being the it being the tribe and sort of our our desire as human beings to belong to a community of like-minded potentially people and uh and that as technology has allowed us to connect more and more across broad distances we're able to sort of micro splice ourselves into more sort of nuanced buckets whereas before you might have been the only person in your entire town that was vehemently in favor of or against one particular thing but now that we now that with the advent of technology you can form a facebook group with those people and suddenly there's five thousand ten thousand fifty thousand people that are organized they're like-minded and that sort of satisfies the missing tribe and yes. community connection that we've lost in today's society. Yeah. I, 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 I almost think it's sort of a continuation of the political change that happened like mid 20th century. It becomes not about discussion in like politics and campaigning. And it becomes more of your identity is your, you know, quick hitter opinion on the top 25 issues of the day. Are you pro abortion? Are you for trickle down economics? Are you anti those two things? Like your identity becomes a set of very simplistic labels, like labeled uh, identifiable positions. Labelism. I I hate labelism because it's a mechanism used by people that don't understand or don't want to take the energy to understand your points to sort of. I guess, yeah, I mean, you're doing your enemy's bidding for them. You're doing your enemy's work for them. Yeah. 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 I would say like, what's, what's less interesting to me. I'm not as interested in your conclusions as much. So your thought process and how you got there, I guess. And that part is completely removed when it's just about shouting your, you know, three word opinions on yeah. things, I well, guess. Well, there's a great saying that I heard recently, which is, uh, Thinking takes a lot of energy, so most people simply judge. <laughs> and uh, God, you have so many good yeah. isms. <laughs> and uh, and it, and it's terrible because in today's world, it's a lot easier to just decide you're not even going to consider something else because it's at odds with who you feel like you are. Um, so I'm curious if we're going to put our future hat on and we're fast forwarding, putting our crystal, looking to our crystal balls, and we're looking 20 years into the future from today. <laughs> do you think we're going to look back on this period of time and go? Remember how foolish we were collectively? I mean, there's so many factors that could influence that, but I, I'm sort of, what I'm getting at is, what is, how, is this, how does this progress from here? Will we look back on this time period differently, do you think, Megan? Oh, I think we're going to look back on this in horror and mortification. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it depends That's on good. what we're talking about. I, I, I mean, so much... there. You know, again, I really I, I hesitate to use words like hysteria and moral panic, but I think that's what we we see. You know, that there was this period in the in the late '80s and the early '90s where people became convinced that there were satanic abuses going on in preschools. <laughs> it was a huge thing. Mm. It was like suddenly, basically, this one mother at this random school. Um, well, actually, it was it was in Southern California. It was in um, I think it was in it was in Orange County, the McMartin preschool case. So there was this like sort of mentally ill mother. My hometown. Yeah. So she who, you know, the child was being <clears throat> excuse me, she thought her child was being abused. 
and somehow got it in her head that these terrible abuses were going on in the preschool. Excuse me, sorry. And so suddenly this idea sort of caught on in the culture that all these preschools were being staffed by devil worshipers who were molesting children and, and, (laughs) um, you know, burning them. And, and these, you know, fantasies got more and more out of control and these children would be questioned about whether or not this was happening. And just the nature of questioning was very suggestive and small children are incredibly open to suggestion. Like they'll just, they'll go along with anything. Like you'll say like, Oh, did elephants come flying through the classroom? And they'll be like, yeah. And so this really became a social contagion. (laughs) The cover of Ms. Magazine ran a story about the danger in our preschools. Like this is what we have to watch out for. I mean, this was not just like a fringe, um, you know, conspiracy theory. This was like, you know, something that people were really concerned about. And so I think that we have little versions of this going on, whether it's the idea that, you know, that if you, uh, any given college student uh, is going to be, you know, sexually assaulted or (laughs) accused of sexual assault, like, you know, this, this idea that one in five women are, are raped on campus. Like that's one of those things like 79 cents on the dollar. That's just like a euphemism. It's, it's not true. It's simply not true. But we saw we we kind of we're just operating as if it is because somehow it's it's easier to be. I, I think a lot of it is just like it's easier to be upset about pronouns or um, you know a- imagined uh, dangers uh, on campuses and imagined harms coming to you know certain marginalized groups than it is to be like upset that we can't get Mitch McConnell out of office. Like there are real mm-hmm. there or that there's no job opportunities. Yeah, for yes, you or, exactly. Yeah. Like there are real um, obstacles that we're facing, but they're just so overwhelming and they feel, feel so intractable that um, it's just, it's easier to, to unload our rage on these like sort of random, but more immediate uh, objects of disdain. And so given so given all this stuff is going on, I want to sort of talk about some what if, if there would be a, a way to download into everybody's mind or everybody that's listening to this sort of a new framework or a new approach or a new way of thinking when it comes to either civil discourse or sort of the, the things that you talk about in your book. Um, like how do we educate people to be either more open-minded or be willing to consider alternative viewpoints? There's no, if there was a magic brushstroke that could be, Hey, I want everybody to think first like this, or, I mean, there's, there's no easy fix here, of course, because these are enormous and sort of generational issues, culture issues, technology issues. It's, it's, it's so it's, so, it's a Gordian knot really is yeah. what it is. But if there were to be a, a perfect solution or if there was a, Oh, if people just understood that this is there anything you can think of that you'd love to you'd like if everybody else felt a lot more about something in a eternal particular wisdom way? well yeah i mean something. the short answer is that people need to realize that um these quote-unquote social media mobs um are it's almost like a phantom like <laughs> there's just not that many of them there's just not hmm. that many people they they just it's it sounds like a lot of people so i think the like the leaders at these institutions need to stop um sort of you know cowing to them like the, the, you know p- people need to stand up like editors of newspapers and you know directors of museums and you know heads of publishing companies need to stand up and say no we're going to go ahead with our regularly scheduled program and we are not going to be shouted down by 
a bunch of people on Twitter. We don't work for Twitter. You know, you work for the New York Times. You don't work for Twitter. So that was my short answer. My my sort of longer, my longer view is that I, I think we need to start thinking about media literacy. Like I, I, this is kind of like a pet theory of mine, or maybe this is going to be like a pet project. I think that like we need to start teaching kids in school how to look at art and how to take in material. Like you have entire generations of people growing up that can't tell the difference between suggesting an idea and endorsing an idea. So if they're looking at a piece of art, a mural that depicts slavery or that a historical document that um, is showing you like, you know, the, the realities of a certain period of time that included a lot of ugliness, you have a lot of people who say like, Oh, well, the fact that you're showing this, you must be saying it's okay. So in order to to show that you don't think it's okay, we just need to take this thing away. Well, that is completely backwards. And it's backwards to like people in my generation. But I think there's a lot of people growing up that honestly cannot tell the difference. (laughs) And I think we need to be teaching kids in school how to read the culture. Like we used to think about media literacy in terms of like, okay, how do you tell fake news from real news? And we still need help with that. But I think it's much more than that now. It's like, um, are you really going to uh, take down an episode of the golden girls because they're wearing mud masks on their face and that looks like blackface and therefore that's harmful. I mean, that, that, that really happened. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, yeah, that, wow. oh yeah. I didn't know that. That's scary. That's like Orwellian <coughs> revisionist yes, it is. history. I mean, it's just there's... weird. It, it implies like such a level of fragility. Like I can't look at that. Like what's the fear that somebody's going to look at that and all of a sudden be convinced to become racist or, or it's something? Just, or like it, it, or people, people are avoiding shame. And, and there's no, people who can't tell the difference between intention and, uh, and, and, response. It's like, you know, there was this case in Oakland recently where there were like these exercise loops hanging up um, in like a park or something. And they were, and somebody on social media, not even anyone in the community, but somebody on social media, like took a picture and said, these are are nooses, like are, you know, people being lynched. And then the white mayor of Oakland gets up and says, well, it doesn't matter, you know, we, we need to do something about this immediately. And it doesn't matter what the intention is, like, our, our people are being traumatized. Well, in fact, like, it was exercise equipment that had been put up by a black member of the community yeah. <laughs> that was used by other members of the community. And yet, like, this idea that the intention doesn't matter, if this is the perception, we, we are, we are reacting to perception more than content. And that needs to stop. And I think it, mm. it needs to stop like from, from the get go. Like we need to start like teaching second graders how to tell the difference between <laughs> something that's being presented to them so they can understand it and something that's being presented to them as propaganda. Yeah. There's a political quote. Somebody said it in a hearing or something. I forget it, but he, somebody stood up and shouted, I've made up my mind. Don't confuse me with the facts. Right. <laughs> oh, goodness. And that's sort of what, what that Oakland mayor is reminding yeah. me of. Um, yeah, that, that's so interesting. I, 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 I do think you're, you're spot on in terms of training people young and, and, and to be able to read 
Like, like I was I was telling you before we jumped on here, like I used to read all the op-eds in the L.A. Times. You were my favorite and I agreed with you most. Right. <laughs> but I still read Jonah Goldberg's. And every once in a while I would find like a nugget of information. Um, you know, there's people I vehemently disagree with, but I'll listen to their stuff. I'll read some of their stuff. And sometimes it'll spark a thought, like a nice thought. Or sometimes I'll be like, oh, so that's where that person's opinion is. Right. Like this idea of harmful content or information like um it's just crazy that you would even have that idea and then have a movie like Saw be released in movie theaters. Yeah. (laughs) You know, if people can consume that without being disturbed. (laughs) Sorry, I just watched Hostel again and it's really affecting me. Are horror movies like going to be phased out? I'm not a big horror movie person, but like what's going on with that genre? It's funny. You can't have anybody die in them anymore because that's uh, that's victimhood. It's funny. It's like I find horror movies to be the most interesting genre because you can make an amazing movie with the lowest budget. Um, and in fact, many of the hits are like tiny budget movies. Uh, it, I don't really gravitate towards like slashers or torture stuff. I'm not into that. I'm more into supernatural stuff. But it's funny. A lot of the like forward oh, thinking, and, you. you know, you, you have oh, like yeah. Dawn of the Dead was one of the most progressive movies, you know, a, a lot of the most progressive themes and, and you had get out. So oh, I'm really proving my point here. <laughs> it, it is really on the, the leading edge. I would say the horror film genre, it's where you can make these sort of points and, and metaphors um, most easily, I guess, yeah. and most poignantly. To, to your point earlier, Patrick, I think it's important to call out and commend you for taking the mental energy to consider other opinions and to take the energy and time to do that because most I want pe- a trophy for it. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you don't get a you don't get a you don't get a trophy for that because we're starting a new world right now. I think you um, need to do some self care go- to make up for the exhaustion. Yeah, I need some self care. Self care Sunday. Yeah, self 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 care Saturday and self care <laughs> Sunday. Um, and I, I have to commend you because I think a lot of people, it's intimidating to try and consider other points of view. It's intimidating to go down and sort of pick something up that you don't understand to try and understand it because what could come out of that is shame within yourself mm. that you, the person reading, or that you, that you were so convicted about your own point of view that you have trouble uh, sort of reconciling that you might have been wrong. And so I think that forms and sort of kicks people into calcifying a lot of their opinions. Yeah. Um, and so that goes back to your point, Megan, about education, where I think, uh, I mean, education to me is sort of the biggest solve to all of these problems because we can, it, it's easier to, in my opinion, to arm a young person with the tools and skills and mindset and approach and ways to process information and conflicting opinions and other points of view than it is to try and nerf the world and uh, and make everything yeah. super safe and everybody wears a helmet because that just doesn't that doesn't it, that doesn't work in the in the natural world that we exist in on this earth. Um, yeah, so education is really important. Yeah. Yeah, I want to transition because you were talking about ideas that people aren't comfortable with, like, or or maybe aren't open to. There was one that you put on your forum, Megan, uh, the idea of being alone mm. successfully and, and happily. That's something I really relate to. I, I think it sounds different to people because it implies that alone is, like, lonely. Right. But I, I almost think I can have more rewarding relationships in my life because I don't have to put so much effort into one single relationship. Um, and I, I've been dating that way for about a a decade now. And, and I've actually seen a noticeable change. Like in the beginning, there was always a point where I'd meet somebody and there'd always be an uncomfortable conversation where I have to be like, okay, well, I'm not really looking for a long-term relationship. Right. And a lot of things would get put on me for that. Like, oh, he's just trying to sleep with me. Are you poly? Are you poly? Is that what you're saying? (laughs) Oh, that sounds like a nightmare (laughs) to me. (laughs) 
Oh god, you're a just multiple. A, you're just a commitment phobe. I think po- Polly is like a fantasy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Hold, hold on, I'm trying to intellectualize commitment phobia. <laughs> hold on, let right. me make it seem cool. <laughs> I'm getting there. Uh, but I, I have noticed uh, more of an acceptance for that or more of like, a, you know, you can live a very fulfilling life without like a committed pair bonded relationship, which is what I what I like to call it. Um, you know, not that I've ever been close to it, but I mean, g- can you speak on that a little bit? I guess yeah. your experience and, and sort of what you would well, tell people. Well, I mean, you can live a, that, that I mean, it's just a caveat. That works unless you want to have a family. I mean, if you, the nuclear family yeah. is going to... Uh, it's going to require some kind of commitment of some sort. So, yes. Um, I mean, I think like, I mean, I probably, when I wrote that down on the, as on the sheet, I meant like, you know, I think that a lot of this, uh, a lot of this identitarianism and a lot of the call out culture and the canceling and all this is, you know, quote unquote virtue signaling that we're seeing is because people can't be alone. They need so desperately to belong to something that they can't, they, there's, you know, to, if, if you're really going to like stick your neck out and say something that somebody might not agree with, or God forbid, pile up on you on Twitter, you're going to be alone with yourself. And a lot of people, cause also, also a lot of people who support you are not going to say so publicly. So you really have to have a strong stomach for, for sort of solitude, either, you know, literal solitude or just sort yeah. of intellectual solitude. You know, I, I think I say in the book, like, you know, if you're going to be honest, the, the only way to be honest is to be alone with your thoughts or something like that. That's so funny. I wrote down the exact yeah, quote. Yeah, what is the I quote? Was, I, can't I was going to bring it up. Uh, that's so funny. I, I wrote that down when I was reading. Uh, that struck me. It was at the end of a chapter. It said, the more honest you are about what you think, the more you have to sit in solitude with your own thoughts. Right. Yeah. So I think that like the one of the biggest things people do to mess up their lives, like on any number of fronts, either socially or romantically or, you know, cognitively is that they can't be alone. So they make decisions because they're afraid, um, to be by themselves. Like they marry the wrong person or they just even get, you know, get involved with the wrong person or, you know, just were sort of like, you know, get swept up into social cliques that they don't really find that satisfying deep down. And just cause, cause they don't want to be alone. Yeah. So I think that that's, um, that to me is like the problem with everything. Like people, my book is called the problem with everything. And people ask me like, what, what, what do you think of this problem with everything? And I think it's, it's that they can't be alone. Now I'm a bit of an outlier because I like really like to be alone. <laughs> so maybe a little bit too much. So I don't <laughs> tell, tell, tell people where you're talking to us from. <laughs> I'm a, I'm on a farm. <laughs> I'm, I'm with a very large dog. So I'm not quite a, you know, not entirely alone. He made an appearance. Yes, he did. <laughs> he yeah. cameoed in this episode a couple make times. Make another one, yeah. but um, he yeah. So it's <laughs> like I, I'm a little bit um, I, I'm I'm a little unusual in that way because I really have you, have you have have you always been that way? Like going back to when you were a kid, you were comfortable hanging out by yourself. I mean, I, I speaking personally, I'm an only mm-hmm. child, so I was raised being very like I'm very comfortable hanging out by myself. I don't mind it. I find it yeah. therapeutic and sort of helps me recharge. And of course, I, I yearn for human connection, sure. but I don't necessarily seek it out in ways that don't make sense and aren't in line with who yeah, I am. Yeah, I'd say that's true of myself as well. I mean, yeah, I have friends. Like, I'm very social. I actually love going to dinner parties and I love talking. Like, my favorite thing to do is talk and have yeah. conversations. So it would be absurd to say that, like, <laughs> I don't want to be around anybody. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I definitely, yeah, when I was a kid, I mean, I'm, I'm not an only child, but, um, I really, you know, I would just sit in my room and draw like before I could write, you know, like I, I really liked 
being uh, by myself and, you know, I didn't, I just, I just don't mind it. I mean, you know, it's funny cause I actually really enjoyed when I was in my twenties, like I had roommates cause I lived in New York city, you know? And um, I, I, I kind of liked that. Like we each had our own room and here's a, here's a little fun, here's a little fun fact for you. One of my roommates is now Flo, the progressive insurance lady. <laughs> no, that's amazing. <laughs> hey, you can, yeah. Get out of here. So, yeah, wow. that's going to be our episode yeah, photo. Yeah. You, just got, you just got we bombed. Almost had, I know, <laughs> yeah, I'm going to Photoshop her we in. We almost had an intervention for her, but she was this struggling actress and she would like be doing these, these like gigs, like, you know, wow. like children's puppet theater and these like horrible gigs. <laughs> it was had, like an intervention to try to get her to quit the business. It's like, <laughs> way to go, Flo. <laughs> I you know. Made it. You, you proved Megan awesome. wrong. Yeah. So I hope <laughs> she won't mind her. that I'm That's gossiping wild. about her. We're still good friends, but yeah. <laughs> so anyway, but, and she's like the most modest person you, you could meet. She's like, yeah. Yeah. How, how, how different is that character from what she's like in, uh, in the real world? Very different. Very different. She very doesn't different. even get recognized. Okay. Like, I mean, cause there's, so there's so much makeup yeah, you on have her hair that. the right yeah. way. Yeah. And, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Um, Sorry, that was a ta- that was such a low so, slow yeah. move to try to get impress impress hey. you guys. <laughs> it definitely worked. It, it'll get you. It'll get you a couple yeah. more uh, likes on the uh, okay. on the yeah. posts. And stuff uh, like but, that. Um, what was I going to say? Yeah, going back to being, being alone, alone. Yeah, so yeah. no, I I liked having roommates and like you know I I live in an apartment building in New York City now. Like I live by myself, but I love like it's the perfect balance because I like. I live alone in my apartment, but then I can like walk out and I like my neighbors and see people in the elevator and like, like that's yeah. a, that's a nice rhythm. Um, so how do you think we, how do you think we foster in young people the, that it's okay to be alone? Cause if I'm thinking through this and I'm a teacher in a classroom and I'm trying, I've got 28 year olds or something like that and I'm trying to help them understand, or I'm trying to help parents do things that help sort of reinforce in their children that it's okay to be alone. It's okay to work on stuff by yourself that you don't need constant validation from the tribe. I mean, and I'm coming up with blanks in terms of like how to reinforce that it's okay to be alone. Do you have any thoughts or suggestions on things people might do to help sort of instill the value? I mean, it would be so hard because you're really never alone now because you've got your screens Right. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, the, I mean, again, like, our, our slot I mean, machines, I just, yeah. right. Like, I mean, I can sit here and say like, Oh, I'm alone on this farm with my dog, but I'm also like, I've got my internet. So not really Ta- talking <laughs> this on a computer. Yeah. You're talking yeah. this on the internet. Um, yeah. I mean, I don't know. I wonder if there's a stigma. I mean, I'm just trying, I don't know now. Like I don't have kids. That's the other thing is like, um, I don't have kids and I never really wanted kids. And I'm, I'm lucky that way that that wasn't, you know, it's not like I, don't have kids and I wanted them. Like I was always pretty sure about that. Yeah. So that I'm, I'm sort of, again, like I'm an outlier. Most people, mo- most people same. do want kids. Most people do want kids. And they, Patrick, P- Patrick's the same. You don't want you. kids. See, but then like, how, no. how, you'll change your mind. <laughs> no, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> but, uh, no. I mean, it's, you know, and I, I think that, uh, you know, one of the reasons that I like, I love, I actually love not having kids. Like people say like, nobody ever woke up every morning and said like, thank God I don't have kids. Oh, I actually do. I actually do wake up every morning and like, Same. Uh, I, I, and I, cause you would never, you would never be alone. Like, you know, until they, until they yeah. moved out. And then I guess you would be sad, although they never move out anymore. So. Especially this world. Yeah. You're stuck with them. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, even without the pandemic, like kids are, not not leaving the nest so yeah i don't know how to get i mean I, I i'm so out of touch with like the way that little kids 
sort of socialized now and their minds developed now. So it would be Same. hard for me to answer that yeah. question. So I, I don't know. It's true. I, I heard a really funny stand-up comedy bit once where he was talking about how weird it is if somebody without kids can tell age differences like oh, zero yeah. to eight. Oh, like, yeah. Oh, six? Uh, cute kid. Looks about 18 months. <laughs> You'd be like, whoa, dude. Because <laughs> it's true. I have no idea what toddler, like what ages. They're just like, they're babies and then they're bigger mm-hmm. and then they're in high school, I guess. Right. You know? There's Yeah. I had a two-year-old visit recently and I guess he was like really tall or something. I don't know. I thought he was like... Hmm. Six and I was like, yeah, was see how bad we are. Like a glass, yeah. like a glass, like a you know, he's like one of Jews that so like put it in this like nice glass. <laughs> oh, you put it in a glass, glass. <laughs> Pour some wine. Like, That's amazing. Um, yeah. Whoa, sippy party? cup. Try sippy <laughs> cup. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Um, well, this has been fantastic. Are there any parting words? And most importantly, uh, I know you've got some interesting stuff, interesting and exciting stuff on the horizon. Uh, new projects that you're working on. Can you uh, can you toot your own horn a little bit? Yeah, let's share, oh, share some more information about yourself. And most importantly, where people can find you. One of the things that I find uh, frustrating, especially because I mostly listen to podcasts when I'm driving, is that I need an easy to remember, actionable place to find oh, more information. Show okay, notes. good point. Uh, so I am about to launch my own podcast because I think I think we can nice. agree that Congrats. there are not enough podcasts out there, and so I definitely not. Agree. I don't think enough people no, are launching. I need podcasts. to do my yeah. part. Um, think everybody has a has a responsibility, and um, so mm-hmm. I am doing a podcast, and it's uh, an, another thing that nobody ever does, which is a podcast where I just talk to people. So I think we definitely need more of those. It's so fun, though. <laughs> yeah. More of those. What a, what a concept. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's very low concept. <laughs> it's such a positive right. so thing. It's a very simple concept. Yeah. No, th- so the show is called The Unspeakable. Uh, I was going to call it The Problem With cool. Everything, because that's my latest book, but my book before that was called The Unspeakable, and I, it seemed more, more uh, apropos. So yeah, so basically the, yeah. the idea, I'm just, I'm talking to people and it's like conversations the way we used to have them. Like, you know, instead of, you know, you stumble upon a new subject and you think like, instead of asking, am I allowed to talk about this? Think like, I can't wait to talk about this. And so that's sort of the idea. I'm talking to like writers and scientists and scholars and some famous people, not famous people, just about sort of the, the things that, that we, we, that we're totally fine to talk about like 10 minutes ago, but are now unspeakable and um, I'm excited about it. So uh, it's going to launch. Well, you have two Thank listeners. you. That's good. That's probably, I can, I'm yeah. going to try to keep my expectations in check, but um, so it's starting uh, <laughs> July 27th and you can oh, find it. Soon. Yeah. That's exciting. It can, you can, um, there's going to be a website, the unspeakable podcast.com and you can go there and find out more about it and you can, Find me on Twitter. Search the yeah, and you can search the unspeakable. I guess uh, in a few weeks on uh, Apple Podcasts. Hopefully yeah, it'll Spotify be on or wherever on you all listen. To, wherever you listen yeah. to podcasts, and then awesome. uh, and then you have a website as well, which is Megan Daum M E G H A N D A U M dot com. Yes. For those of you listening, please check it out. There's a bunch of great information on there. There's links to articles. There's links to places you can buy the book. It's a really, really well done site. And you can also put a face to the name as well, which is also nice for yeah. human communication. And I'll personally vouch for uh, buying the problem with everything. I've loved it. I sit at the coffee shop and I read it and it's it's been wonderful. Yeah. I drink my Chaga Chino. Oh, Chaga <laughs> Chino. Gosh. Yeah. Shout out to Chit Chat Cafe in Los Angeles. So I'm really into mushrooms right now. Um, not psychedelic uh-huh. mushrooms, also psychedelic mushrooms, <laughs> but I'm also into non-psychedelic mushrooms. 
Um, and so I've noticed a lot of Los Angeles coffee shops are starting to do these really based cappuccino drinks and I'm loving it. They're way too expensive, but uh, you know, happy to support during quarantine. You'll probably times. when you get back to New York, discover that they've infiltrated New York. Yeah, New York sure. tends to be a little behind on the coffee on the, on the, yeah, they're not yeah. mushroom people. Oh, so I guess, so is that a thing? Like in California, we're ahead on the coffee game. Oh, we're but ahead on. But, but East Coast is ahead on the fashion game. I don't I know. Yeah. I mean, pink, when I was in high school, pink polos were a thing in the East Coast way That's before Kanye. they were a thing on the Kanye's West Coast. <laughs> but they never really reached the West Coast, which I'm kind of happy about. So um, <laughs> Awesome. Well, with that. Yeah, Megan, it's been phenomenal talking with Thanks, you. Thank you, you so much. Um, sh- sh- shout, out to your jo- shout out to your dog for chiming yeah, in and, uh, pretty and well. participating. I'm giving, I'm giving him yeah, a B plus did, did, for his performance yeah b plus a for effort um and a trophy as well for participation six months old he's got like 74 (laughs) trophies already so he's got all the trophies all right you're gonna you're gonna need to get a new room there for the rest of his trophies so uh patrick uh, why don't you go ahead and take us on awesome yeah this has been deus life an aspirational podcast and we'll see y'all next time peace